Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Deconstructed. I'm Mara Vistendahl, filling in for Ryan Grimm this week. Speaker Nancy Pelosi landed yesterday in Taiwan, where she was scheduled to meet with President Tsai Ing-wen on Wednesday. She is the first Speaker of the House to visit the island since 1997, when Newt Gingrich spent a few hours there, and her visit has been mired in controversy since the news leaked last week. U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has landed in Taiwan after weeks of speculation over her potential visit. Beijing has called the move a major political provocation, and the Chinese Defense Ministry said it will launch targeted military operations to counter the visit. If Speaker Pelosi visits Taiwan, said the Chinese Foreign Affairs spokesman, it would grossly interfere in China's internal affairs. He warned the Chinese military would never sit idly by. Biden administration officials had warned the House Speaker against it. This is the highest level visit to Taiwan by a U.S. official in 25 years. Despite Taiwan having its own government, culture and history, the Chinese government claims that it is part of China and Beijing has threatened to launch, quote, targeted military actions in response to Pelosi's visit. Already, the People's Liberation Army has conducted live fire drills in the Taiwan Strait and the South China Sea. Pelosi's Taiwan trip has divided Democrats and the left, so this seemed like a good time to reach out to two leading progressive foreign policy strategists for their thoughts on the U.S.-China relationship. I spoke with Matt Duss, foreign policy advisor for Senator Bernie Sanders, and with Tobita Chow, director of Justices Global, which is a project of the group People's Action. Along with Pelosi's visit, We discuss the pitfalls in mixing human rights with national security concerns, how the repression of the predominantly Muslim Uyghurs in Xinjiang connects to the U.S.-led war on terror, and what Matt and Tobita think of Biden's approach to China. Our conversation happened last week, before Pelosi's visit was confirmed. And to begin with, I asked about her expected trip and whether she should go. Tobita started us off. My overall view is that the trip would be a bad idea, that it would uh, inflame, further inflame tensions between the United States uh, and China uh, at a time when I think that's the last thing that we need, and would uh, predictably lead to escalated threats from China uh, against Taiwan. And meanwhile, contributing nothing that anyone can name in terms of improving security for Taiwan. Um, I think we should be prioritizing in our foreign policy, um, supporting Taiwan security and and self-defense. But it is unclear how this trip would make any material contribution towards that goal while uh, potentially making uh, Taiwan less secure overall. On the other hand, I think that uh, I'm concerned that some of the criticisms and arguments against the trip that end up at the same conclusion that, that, that she should not make this trip um, have engaged in what I see is uh, just like rampant threat inflation talk about how China's response could include a no-fly zone or a naval blockade. And I think those kinds of concerns are um, not well-grounded and engaging in a, a pattern of overall threat inflation uh, regarding Taiwan that I think is counterproductive and actually functions to make Taiwan less secure in the long run. Right. So, I mean, there has been there has been a fair amount of rhetoric coming from the Chinese government. Biden talked with the Chinese leader Xi Jinping on July 27th and a description of the call issued by the Chinese foreign ministry afterward warned those who play with fire will perish by it. Um, That's a quote. And I mean, so, Matt, what, what do you think? I mean, I mean, first off, I mean, Senator Sanders hasn't commented on the speaker's trip. I'm not going to get out in front of him um, on this. 
I would I would just say as generally I, I do think it's important to show solidarity with other democracies and other populations and democracies and and not in democracies and but I think the question to be asked is you know whether that cause is advanced or not you know and and I also would would sort of echo the, the second thing that, that 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 Toby said about you know when people are you know they're they're issuing these dire warnings about the the Chinese government's response I mean I think there's there's a problem in that too I think the the goal here should to not as I see it for for progressives and for Democrats is to not be drawn into this kind of hawkish discourse that just inevitably and always, I think, benefits uh, conservatives and, and national security hawks and really undermines, I think, progressive goals. You know, and I think that's kind of a broader issue that Senator Sanders has certainly addressed with regard to, um, you know, the the shift in U.S.-China relations and and this kind of broader idea of, you know, great power competition or conflict, whatever term one wants to use. And some of the dangers that poses just looking at very recent history and the way that could crowd out avenues for, for cooperation uh, and ultimately undermine, I think, a, a lot of important human human security goals. I mean, you, you talked about concerns about being overly hawkish and, uh, you know, that was a cornerstone of Trump's approach to China. And I'm just curious what both of you think of the Biden administration's approach to China so far, you know, on the one hand, after the period of seesawing stances, stances and sanctions and overtly racist comments of the Trump administration, and if anything seems more rational, um, but uh, there have there have also been a number of critiques of, of Biden's policy. So I'm, I'm curious where you stand. Yeah, I can, I can take that one first. I mean, my, you know, my view, and I, and I do want to be, I just, a caveat here, I'm here expressing my own views, not representing the Senator, although obviously a lot of what I say will, will echo things he has said. In, in, in general, I think, you know, the Biden administration has been careful in a way that I think is a certainly refreshing after the Trump administration with all the really just straight up racist rhetoric around, you know, around China's government policy and obviously around the pandemic um, stuff that had very real physical impacts for our communities here in the United States, our Chinese and, and Asian fellow citizens in similar ways that we saw impacting our, our Muslim American communities um, around the war on terror. And that's unfortunately something that's been repeated uh, throughout history and uh, yet another reason why I'm glad that they tended to avoid this kind of inflammatory rhetoric. Now, having said that, I think that the danger is, I mean, it's good to avoid, you know, that kind of rhetoric that demonizes um, any people or, or, or really any country. But at the same time, I think one, if you are arranging your foreign policy around this idea that, you know, China represents the biggest threat to American security and prosperity of any country in the world, that policy sort of speaks for itself. I'm not going to make an equation um, between the, the Biden administration and the Bush administration, but I would say, you know, in, in the weeks after 9-11, George W. Bush went to a Muslim center, right? I mean, I think his his rhetoric showed that, you know, he said at least at the rhetorical level, we are not at war with Islam, we are not at war with Muslims. But his policy spoke very much for itself. I mean, these policies that he pursued, the military interventions, the wars, the assassinations, torture, detention, all kind of painted a very, very different picture that suggested that maybe we were, in fact, at war with a, a, a religious faith. And I think that's something to be very, very careful about. Yeah, I, I guess the, the counterpoint that I that I hear often is that progressives frame the U.S.-China relationship as being primarily about U.S. actions when there 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 has been, you know, increasing authoritarianism in China, a slide toward fewer freedoms, and uh, life has gotten worse for many people, not least um, ethnic minorities under under Xi Jinping. So, you know, Toby, I wonder how how you respond to that, or and, and what you think generally of Biden's approach to China. Yeah, I think the growing authoritarianism and nationalism and repression that we're seeing from the Chinese government uh, is uh, extremely worrying. And I have friends and people that I've worked with in both mainland China and, and Hong Kong um, that have like directly suffered from that. So um, I take that stuff very seriously. I think my 
my concern, though, and my my critique of how these issues are have been approached uh, by the Biden administration and the foreign policy establishment um, overall is that um, this approach of intensifying competition, uh, zero-sum competition between the U.S. and China, and is an approach that uh, is not well designed to um, actually encouraging better behavior from the Chinese government. And I think uh, I, I have pretty different uh, analysis of where those really bad policies in the Chinese government are coming from. I see the growing and intensifying nationalism and authoritarianism within Chinese politics as part of a much larger global trend that we're seeing um, around the world with authoritarian and nationalist uh, movements and governments in, yes, in China, also here in the U.S. and the Trump administration, in Brazil, India, Poland, Hungary, like we could go on. And I think it is important to understand the root causes of this global trend, which I think have to do with severe and growing dysfunctions in the neoliberal global economy since the 2008 crisis, that the global economy has not fully recovered. Global economic growth has been very weak. That uh, encourages a sense of zero-sum competition, which becomes then a breeding ground for this kind of nationalist and authoritarian politics. So I think it's very important to have those root causes in mind. And we need a strategy that can uh, attack this problem um, at that root, which has to do with the global system. And the problem with uh, seeing how uh, these issues of authoritarianism and nationalism are taking shape in China and then turning that into a reason to uh, engage in more severe competition and more aggressive actions against China is that um, I think that can just end up feeding into the dysfunctions of the system that makes the whole system worse, uh, does not actually create incentives for the Chinese government to behave better and actually creates lots of excuses within Chinese politics for uh, the most extreme forms of nationalism, which are then get used to justify uh, further uh, repressive and authoritarian policies within China. Yeah, I think just just if I could just for a minute, I think yeah, that's, that's such ahead. an important point is just understanding not just the sources of nationalism, but like the purposes that nationalism serves for governments. And one doesn't have to equate the Chinese government and its policies and practices with the U.S. government to recognize that, you know, there are there are real similarities with regard to the way that nationalism and, and, and fear and suspicion of other countries is deployed to achieve certain goals for certain elites. I mean, whether it's, you know, the U.S.-China relationship or the U.S.-Russia relationship or the U.S.-Iran relationship, there isn't, it's always a mutually reinforcing a kind of relationship between, you know, I, I would say, you know, nationalist hardliners in all of these countries, mm. um, that their their rhetoric in, in some ways mirrors, mirrors each other because it is performing very similar functions at, at a basic level, even though I think that, you know, these systems are in many ways different. Right. Yeah. I know that historians of the Cold War period often talk about this cycle of mirroring and, um, and escalation, and, and that definitely was a, a factor then. You know, to, to, get, to get into history a little bit, um, yeah, in the time that I've been reporting on China as a journalist, and certainly I think at the time that, that you all have um, worked on China, there's been a dramatic shift in how centrist politicians in corporate America perceived China and spoke about China. So, you know, just think back not, not that long ago, uh, Mark Zuckerberg was displaying Xi Jinping's book, uh, on a visit by the Chinese leader, you know, this is not even a, a book that anyone would read, and you know, go, went went for a run in Tiananmen Square, which is is also not somewhere you would run. And Google is building a censored search engine for China, and and today you have some of the same big tech executives arguing that you know America needs AI weapons to counter China. So just and this same trend has played out, of course, across. Uh, multiple sectors, not just in tech. Um, so it's, consensus in Washington has dramatically shifted. And um, that's something that Senator Sanders has, has pointed out in his writings. Um, can, can you talk about why, uh, about what has driven that beyond the 2008 economic crisis, as, as Toby mentioned? Yeah, I mean, Senator, yeah, as you mentioned, Senator Sanders kind of laid out this argument in a piece he wrote for Foreign Affairs, uh, I think it was April of 2021, um, just noting, as you said, the 180 degree shift with regard to, you know, the kind of consensus position um, on on what 
China wanted, what the Chinese government wanted, and what the nature of the U.S.-China relationship should be. Um, I will note, as 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 many and he has also noted, like despite that this completely different perception of China, the answer for Congress remains the same, and that is that big corporation should receive tens of billions of dollars in American taxpayer money. Um, isn't that's just really interesting? But yeah, the, uh, back around 2000, as he noted, there you know the sense was well, you know China's growing, and you know we're going to you know give it a you know most favored nation trading status. You know talk of bringing it to the WTO. The idea being, you know. China's economy is going to grow and it's going to, you know, help a lot of people. It's going to lift a lot of people out of poverty, which it did. I mean, as he has recognized many times, I mean, I think the, the transformation of, of large parts of China has been pretty amazing in, in that respect. But the idea was like, well, as Chinese, as the Chinese people become richer, then they will become more liberal and China will become less repressive. And obviously that has not worked out. Now, I would say, um, that often does not work out, but you know it's one of those arguments that involved giving you know enormous tax incentives uh, to companies and uh, you know that enabled them to to offshore and, and seek cheaper labor with fewer labor standards, and and here we are twenty years later where China is now perceived as, as a much bigger competitor, if not an outright threat uh, to American security and prosperity. And yet again, the answer is to provide enormous tax incentives to bring, you know, essentially these same corporations back onshore and rebuild our supply chains and our manufacturing capacity, all important things to do. We should not need a threat of a foreign country to do these things, uh, to, to build American industry, to, to kind of build American supply chains and help Americans generally. Unfortunately, that's that's the way this stuff often works. So, yeah, I think the point that the senator was making in that piece was just like, you know, there was an unassailable consensus about what China wants 20 years ago. There now appears to be a fast forming, unassailable consensus about what China wants now. And we should be a bit more careful about making these assumptions, given that it was it was apparently so wrong then and might well be now. Yeah, I think this shift in the position of corporate America is really essential to the to the emergence of this new uh, consensus in D.C. Uh, Professor Ho Feng Hong um, from Johns Hopkins has written about this based on a study of the position of corporate lobbyists in D.C. on various bills uh, regarding China. And what he argues is that since the 2008 crash uh, because of economic policies in China in in response to that economic crisis, uh, we've seen a a radical transformation in the relationship between China and U.S. multinational corporations. And there was a a rapid shift from uh, China acting as a source of low-wage factory labor to U.S.-based uh, multinational corporations uh, occupying a subordinate position in their supply chains, to the rise of Chinese companies as rivals and competitors uh, to U.S. multinational corporations. And uh, these, these rising uh, Chinese companies first started to outcompete U.S. companies in the Chinese market, uh, or in some cases, the Chinese government pushed out U.S. companies, uh, for example, uh, this, this happened with social media companies. Um, and then increasingly, we see Chinese companies um, competing or outcompeting uh, U.S. companies in the global market. Um, so, for example, we've seen that uh, with uh, Huawei. And seeing these shifts, uh, U.S. multinational corporations, which uh, used to play a key role in defending the U.S.-China relationship uh, because that was profitable for them, um, now, increasingly, a number of, of these companies uh, would like to see the U.S. government help them fight back against uh, the rise of these Chinese rivals. And Professor uh, Hung uh, looks at uh, the record of, of uh, corporate lobbies in D.C., and there's, there's a discernible shift in their position from being staunch champions of the U.S.-China relationship and fighting against any anti-China bills in D.C. to either remaining silent on those bills or actually advocating for them. And so I think this shift in the attitude of, of corporate America to the U.S.-China relationship is really essential to understanding uh, the emergence of this uh, new con- anti-China consensus in D.C. Right. So they, the multinationals have largely been kept out of the Chinese market or you know, not been able to break in for various reasons. And you know, so we see, for example, the, the, the push against industrial espionage. Maybe this is a good time to talk about the, the CHIPS and Science Act, which passed Congress yesterday. Um, I mean, that's a bill that has been promoted as boosting U.S. technological and manufacturing capacity in order to make the U.S. more competitive with China. Uh, it's been 
the a previous version was called the Endless Frontier Act, which kind of brings to mind like the the 1980s computer game or Oregon Trail, you know, kind of like manifest destiny notion. To, um, me, it, 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 to me, it reminds me of Star Trek. I was I was hoping there would be some kind of oh, okay. warp, warp, warp drive, um, you know, development plan, but no. But yeah, sorry. You can cut that out. <laughs> Maybe that's the follow up. <laughs> I'm working on it. I'm working on it, but it's hard to get my boss to go for that. Right. But, um, but it's, you know, maybe if you frame it as, as making the U.S. more competitive against China. Listen, Warp Drive by 2025. I've been trying to sell this for so long and I just can't get anyone to buy it. But, that, but, that, but that's been very much the framing. And I mean, what, what's your stance and Senator Sanders' stance on, on, the, on the bill and, yeah. um, and how it's been framed? No, I mean, Senator Sanders has spoken about this multiple times, including on, on the floor of the Senate. You know, he, he recognizes the need to rebuild American manufacturing, to rebuild art specifically relating to to, um, to semiconductors. But his question on this, as on so many things, is do we need to be providing enormous taxpayer subsidies and incentives that essentially transfer American tax dollars to enorm- already enormously wealthy companies and CEOs? You know, and, and the answer that, that Congress, unfortunately, always seems to give is yes. And their supporters of the bill will say, well, there are safeguards with regard to, you know, stock buybacks and other things like that. But, you know, we can point to many examples of how those, you know, guardrails were <laughs> written into these bills, you know, or even look at the American Rescue Plan or, 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 you know, money that was given to the airlines with the understanding, like, American taxpayers are going to bail you out so you don't have to lay people off. And they said, thank you very much and went ahead and pushed people into retirement, which is why, you know, people are having flights delayed and canceled all over the place now, you know, going back even to the 2008 financial crisis, you know, you know, American corporations bailed out and their CEO said, thanks so much and took enormous bonuses. And so, you know, whatever rules might be written in, these companies are very good at kind of skirting those rules and just taking the cash. So that's that's been his position. Um, and again, it's it's you know in some ways tough because, as I said, he you know we we recognize the need to rebuild American industry and and, and create jobs and you know the, the security aspect of having an onshore uh, semiconductor industry. But you know he has has very serious questions about whether this is the way to do it. Toby, do you have thoughts on chips? Yeah. Um, so one is that the Chips Act that has passed um, is a, is significantly stripped down from earlier phases of versions of. So it, it, it comes out of the U.S. Innovation and Competitive Act uh, that was passed in the Senate, and then there's a Competes Act that passed in the House. Those early versions of the bill of, of this bill uh, were much more comprehensive and included a lot of foreign policy provisions, mostly geared towards uh, competition with China, uh, many of which uh, I saw is like quite dangerous. So um, I'm quite gratified that what ended up passing was this CHIPS bill, uh, which uh, stripped out a lot of those, um, what I think were very often dangerous foreign policy provisions. But I, I think uh, it is important to keep track of how anti-China politics is playing out in Congress and in D.C. Um, this, this CHIPS bill was one of the premier uh, products uh, of uh, anti-China politics uh, under the Biden administration. You know, so, so much of the politics regarding China isn't really about China. It's really about us and internal U.S. dynamics and how those and how China gets used to sort of displace internal tensions or um gets used as a way to sort of project our, our internal tensions and anxieties outwards. And one of the key pieces of, of discourse uh, regarding China um, across the political spectrum has been this idea of, of U.S.-China competition is going to save U.S. politics, that in the face of growing polarization, in particular the growing radicalization of the right in the Republican Party, that we can bring the country together through competition with China, that this can be something that can unite the country and allow us to govern again. And there was this dream of rebuilding bipartisanship, even given the radicalization of the right, rebuilding bipartisanship around competition with China. And uh, there were even arguments that this could be used to pass bold progressive legislation. And I think that is not what we are seeing We've been trying this for a while now, and that's not what we are seeing. What we are seeing is that um, what anti-China politics is good for, 
is bills that amount to enormous corporate giveaways. And the two major beneficiaries of that have been um, the military industrial complex. um, And now these certain elements of the tech industry and companies that are already highly profitable. And that's what this politics looks like in practice. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You know, Toby, your group, Justice is Global, released a report last summer on anti-Asian racism. And, you know, when you talk about what an anti-China policy is, Good for the the report really made the argument that these sorts of policies have promoted the idea that China is an existential threat to every American and, you know, not just a threat to U.S. global domination or to U.S. national security, but but actually to every person in the country and that that notion then in turn feeds racism and, um, you know, plays into, has, has driven some of the hate crimes that we've seen over, over the past few years. Yeah, I should, I should disclose that I offered feedback on an early draft of that report. But can you talk ab- about specifically how you recommend counteracting those narratives? I mean, what are alternatives um, to, to what you describe as an anti-China approach? Yeah, so one major alternative is uh, to stop using China as a scapegoat for problems in U.S. society, uh, problems of like, you know, the threat of authoritarianism, problems of growing inequality and uh, the loss of good jobs. And I think that we as progressives, we need to uh, clarify and, and promote narratives and promote policies that put the blame where it belongs problems of corporate power and unaccountable elites um, within U.S. politics, politicians that have uh, worked to support corporate power and undermine the power of of working people, undermine labor unions and so on. And that is the most uh, important thing to like clarify who is actually responsible for the problems facing the vast majority of of people in in this country and to promote uh, real solutions that can actually make people's lives better. The other thing is uh, to, you know, we argue that we need to make a a careful distinction between these inflated uh, threat narratives, which we see as unjustified and and dangerous, versus what we see as like legitimate criticism of the Chinese government, the policies of of repression uh, and so on, um, and criticisms of the Chinese government grounded in principles of democracy and human rights, and also understand that uh, those principles of human rights and democracy are not going to be served uh, through a politics of uh, increasing rivalry that is driven by these inflated threat narratives. Right. I mean, so when you talk about human rights concerns, I'm, I'm, I, I would like to ask you both about, about Xinjiang and you know the situation there, which is that you have over estimates of over a million Uyghurs that have been detained in in, internment camps over over the past few years, many others that have been forced into labor, a kind of cultural annihilation at work. And you both pushed back against the tendency to tether human rights issues to national security priorities. Uh, And the the plight of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang has, has, has largely been taken up by conservative Republicans uh, who in the past have fanned Islamophobia in other parts of the world. And, and so I'm just wondering, how, how do you counter that? And, and what, what does a leftist 
approach to Xinjiang look like? Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. And, you know, my first response without being too glib is just to note that conservatives always seem to identify human rights problems in countries they want to fight with. But I think the progressive response is to take a consistent position with regard to human rights, both obviously here at home, um, but around the world. Um, And having, you know, a, a, a realistic understanding of the actual tools we have to improve human rights and press governments to stop abuses of human rights. Now, I think with Xinjiang, one of the things we can do, and I think the United States has been doing, is simply raising the issue, um, which is important, that there's something valuable in that. I think ultimately um, it's going to work better if it's not just the United States pointing this finger, if it's it's large as possible, a coalition and set of multilateral institutions like the UN and others who who are calling this out. I mean, there are sanctions tools that the U.S. can use on specific officials. I would make a distinction between kind of broad-paced sectoral sanctions. I mean, if if that were even possible with China, (laughs) given um, its own economic power and the kind of interrelationship between our economies, it's not possible to do that in the way that's being done with Russia, for example. But I would also add that, you know, U.S. credibility on human rights now is not great. And here I would say, just for example, look a couple of weeks ago to the president's trip to the Middle East. How much credibility do we imagine that the United States might have to, to kind of note these abuses in China while he is bumping fists with Mohammed bin Salman or inviting, you know, um, Egypt's President Sisi to the White House? You know, I think ultimately we want to, you know, if we want the kind of the word, you know, the words international rules based order to have any meaning whatsoever, I think we, we need to understand that that applies to us and our friends as well, you know, and not, you know, insist upon a special dispensation or special rules for us and our friends. And that's exactly what we do right now. Last thing I was add to this is, you know, one of the justifications that the administration gave for that trip to the Middle East was precisely because of China. You know, their argument is that, you know, we need to stay engaged and, and be a presence in this region or else it will be filled by by bad actors like like Chinese government or the Russian government. And it just shows how this kind of approach can be used to excuse a whole number of things, not only on human rights. But, you know, my question is, like, what really couldn't you what kind of double standard couldn't you smuggle in under that kind of framework? Right. You know, I, I you mentioned the UN, um, but the UN has largely been silent on the issue of Xinjiang. You know, you had the recent visit by the UN High Commissioner on Human Rights to the region in, in which she declined to call out the abuses that were going on. Um, and, and, you know, there's, there's, there is a perception that other arms of the UN are, are kind of compromised. You've had massive bribery cases involving UN officials in China. And so with international bodies failing on those issues, what can progressives do? Yeah, I, I think like par- part of the uh, paralysis at the UN is that there have been repeated attempts within the United Nations by the U.S. and U.S. allies to condemn the human rights abuses uh, in Xinjiang. And yeah, this has happened a number of times where uh, countries always line up in the same way. The countries signing up to condemn China are U.S. and mainly U.S. allies, um, mainly among the wealthier countries of the world. Um, And then China, on its part, uh, organizes countries to oppose these, um, these statements of condemnation. And it is disproportionately developing countries of the global south that sign on on China's side. And it is notable that majority Muslim countries, attempt to, to my recollection, have yet to uh, join the U.S. and U.S. allies in condemning uh, the uh, oppression in Xinjiang, even though it is justified in terms of Islamophobia. And to the question of credibility, I think that a part of the problem here is the U.S. and its advocacy uh, internationally around Xinjiang has has yet to really face up to its role in the problem. There are a lot of aspects to the system of repression in Xinjiang, but one core way that it gets justified and legitimated within China is through Islamophobic narratives and Islamophobic counterterrorism narratives. The idea that uh, Islam is a source of terrorism 
and that uh, you know this is the the narratives that they use within China that Chinese leaders use to justify these policies that uh, Islam is a source of of terrorism and the only way to deal with that is by uh, intensely surveilling uh, the Muslim population and uh, engaging in a program of coercion and repression and the these Islamophobic narratives that are used to justify it these are war on terror narratives that the Chinese leadership explicitly borrowed from the U.S.-led war on terror in the Islamophobic uh, ideas that were used to justify um, the U.S. approach to the war on terror. And in order to attack that form of legitimation in the way that uh, the Chinese government uses that to perpetuate uh, its program of repression in Xinjiang, we need to confront and repudiate our government's own record of engaging in Islamophobic or on terror policies than to do that in front of the whole world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you even had Uyghurs who were detained at Guantanamo. Exactly, uh, exactly, while, right? exactly. And, you know, early on in the war on terror, the China was uh, a solid partner, a solid and valued partner of the United States uh, in the U.S.-led uh, war on terror. Right. And there was As was Vladimir there. Putin. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, just one one other aspect of this that uh, scholars and researchers that look at this stuff have 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 pointed out repeatedly is that the repression in Xinjiang. One of the uh, grotesque parts of it is is the the integration of these like state of the art uh, tech systems, like surveillance technology, tech systems designed to aid in ethnic profiling, and how those have been integrated into policing practices in Xinjiang. Uh, that has to stop. Uh, a problem is that those very systems are also developed and used here in the United States and are embraced as, by police agencies here in the U.S. and a part of uh, um, policing strategies here in the U.S. If we want to stop their use in China, then we need to stop their use and development here and create global standards to stop these practices and, and curtail these systems uh, internationally. And um, in effect, the current approach is to say that uh, we're going to stop these systems in China while here in the U.S. we're going to engage in research and development. We're going to invest in these systems in the U.S. and we're going to use these systems in U.S. policing. And of course, that's that's not going to work. Um, We need some consistent standards that will apply to U.S., to China and everywhere. And there's been a lot of exchange of information and technology. I mean, early on some of the, the major predictive policing scholars would go to China to lecture and you had companies uh, pushing their technologies there as well. So it's a good point. Yeah. Close collaboration. Yeah. Um, Matt, you, you wanted to say yeah, something? If I could just get, you know, yeah. to say a bit more on your, your question about the UN, because yeah. that's a really important one. Cause I think as, as a progressive, you know, I think believe that building a system of, you know, international institutions, that can facilitate cooperation and establish a set of norms related to human security, human dignity, and human rights is really important. And we've seen just over the past 10, 10 or more years, I mean, obviously these, the UN has never worked perfectly ever. It's a, it's a, it's an organization built by, by humans. It's, it's, it's always going to have its problems, but especially over the past 10 years around, you know, around things like Syria, you know, we've seen how the security council has been used and, Let's be clear, the United States has always kind of abused its role on the Security Council to advance its own interests and stop others from from pushing back when it wanted. But I think it's just been clear, you know, on on Syria, the way that, that Russia has, has used its veto and on Xinjiang, obviously, um, as China has. And I'm, I'm thinking here of a, of a comment. This is over 10 years ago at an international conference where the question was asked to, there was a panel of representatives from countries from the global south. And the question was asked, what does your country want from the international system? And one of the, the responses was, well, what, what we would like to do is rescue the international system from the victors of World War II. And I thought that was an interesting way to put it because this you know, system was designed precisely in that era for that reason to empower a very small set of actors. And I think thinking about how we go about, you know, really trying to strengthen and affirm and build legitimacy for a set of norms requires broadening the circle and empowering, um, frankly, a much, much larger circle of countries with with populations that are very young, very dynamic, and want to be engaged in writing the rules. They don't want to just be following the rules that are written for them, but they want to be very engaged in in developing, I think, that consensus and ultimately, hopefully, that legitimacy. So you mean sort of building a global progressive alliance 
Is that, is that what I would mean? not specifically that, though. Obviously, that's something that Senator Sanders strongly supports. I strongly support. I think Toby does too. I think progressives have a particular role to play in building, you know, you know, international solidarity and cooperation. But I'm here specifically thinking about something like the UN or multilateral international institutions that need to be much, much more representative of the yeah, member right. states mm-hmm. within them. Yeah, right. and I think right. there is what we see in. In the idea of that kind of approach is uh, a very different way that we could approach the idea of, of the role that the U.S. can play in the, in the world and what U.S. leadership could look like. And because there is a lot of anxiety about like the future of U.S. leadership and the way that often plays out is in trying to desperately hold on to the form of U.S. hegemony that this country has um, enjoyed for a number of decades, in spite of the fact that the world is changing and that is increasingly unrealistic. And I think that there is an an alternative form of leadership that the U.S. could play in the world that could significantly increase uh, the sense of U.S. legitimacy in in the eyes of other countries that would involve reforming existing institutions, uh, global multilateral institutions, and reforming the overall global system in a way that is more equitable and and more representative, and that um, deals with these severe and persistent problems of inequality uh, between global north and global south, um, both economically and in terms of just the say that the the amount of voice that different countries have in, in how the global system works and how these multilateral systems work. And I think there could be a very powerful and progressive role for the U.S. to play in creating more equitable systems. And that would be an approach that would make the world um, more equal, make things better for a lot of people, and also like reestablish a sense of, of productive U.S. leadership like on a different basis. Right. So when we talk about the left in China, I think it's important to acknowledge a group that exists you know, primarily online, but that has increasing influence in some circles. Earlier this year, you were both interviewed for an article um, by David Cleon in the in the Nation on the left in China, and and that article got into some groups that are ostensibly leftist that push what what many people would say is misinformation on China. These are groups like Tiao Collective, uh, which which has a um, which has a lot of influence online. Doesn't have a lot of political power, as I know, but as far as I know, but but you know, is a, a group that many on the left have had to contend with, and and so these are groups that are largely seen as friendly to the Chinese government that that deny that there is significant repression in Xinjiang that have um, pushed back against critiques of, of repression in Hong Kong and, you know, have really um, become a thorn in the, in the side of, of some progressives uh, who work on China. And, and so I wonder how you push back against that sort of mis- misinformation. I mean, do you just ignore it? What's the best way to address it? Because these groups do have growing influence online. So I think an important piece of perspective for me is that they do have growing influence online, but in the grand scheme of things, they are still addressing uh, a fairly small audience, really uh, a portion, and I think a, a, a minority small portion um, of the U.S. left. And if you look at you know debates within within Congress or in D.C., I think I think their their influence is 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 fairly marginal um, on on these questions. They are, however, uh, a significant problem within left organizations. So for me, as someone who uh, operates within the left ecosystem, um, like this does uh, become an issue. And I think, you know, the, the main solution is to build as much power and infrastructure as we can around what I see as a principled, uh, progressive and internationalist uh, politics that both uh, opposes anti-China nationalism in the U.S. and uh, works towards uh, building an alternative to a great power conflict between the U.S. and China, and holds firm on what I see as core progressive principles around human rights and democracy, and um, clarifies how we can maintain those those principles in a consistent way while opposing hawkish policies in in U.S. foreign policy and. 
I think that we can organize much more power in U.S. politics um, around um, this approach to the U.S.-China relationship rather is, than uh, this other approach, which is engaging in uh, what I see as like apologetics on behalf of authoritarianism and nationalism within China. I think like that approach is not just um, a violation of our principles, but also deeply flawed from a perspective of political strategy. Like one way to, to look at that question is um, one of the key fights within U.S. politics is against authoritarianism. And in that fight against authoritarianism, I think uh, progressives have both the opportunity and maybe the historic calling and duty to lead in the struggle against authoritarianism within U.S. politics. And it would it hurts the credibility of any forces on the left uh, within that, that overall struggle if they are simultaneously excusing authoritarianism and nationalism in other countries. Yeah, I mean, if I could just add quickly, I mean, I think, yeah. you know, this is, we've seen similar dynamics like this, again, to go back to recent history in Syria, elements of the left that pushed, you know, disinformation, misinformation, whether it's, you know, questioning, um, you know, the, the Assad regime's atrocities, you know, misinformation and conspiracy theories about the white helmets, for example. Um, and obviously now with regard to, to Russia's war in Ukraine, you know, and I and I, I wrote a piece in the New Republic a few weeks ago that addressed specifically the issue of Ukraine and, and the conversation on the left in an attempt to try and kind of, you know, make my argument for why I, you know, I thought the position of supporting Ukraine's defense um, is the right one for the left. But I was also, I think, trying to foster, I think, a, a discussion on the left because I recognize there's a diversity of views. Some people, you know, suspicions of American military power are, are very well founded. Um, suspicions of the way that human rights is used as cover for imperialism are very well founded. We have very recent examples of the way that human rights has been instrumentalized to advance goals with have, which have nothing to do with, with human rights. So I think the challenge in all of these places, but you know, with China certainly, is to continue to have a strong and consistent position on human rights while at the same time working to reform the kind of national security approach and foreign policy approach that has really undermined human rights everywhere, including in the United States. Um, and, and that's challenging, but that's that's the work we have to do on the left. Yeah. And I know, you know, anecdotally, I've, I've reported a number of pieces on human rights in China and again and again encounter sources who are frustrated that by the fact that it seems like the most receptive people in Congress are people like Senator Rubio, who doesn't otherwise who share people who don't otherwise share their their values and and there's this view that there's a kind of appropriation of of human rights causes when it comes to China. So Matt, you mentioned an essay that Senator Sanders wrote in Foreign Affairs last year. Uh, it was called "Don't Start a New Cold War with China," and you know in that essay he pointed out that that while there is a lot of talk in, in Washington about rising authoritarianism authoritarianism in China, mm. uh, we are facing a very real democratic crisis in, in the United States. Are there parallels between what's happening in the United States and what's happening in China? Or, uh, you know, how do you conceive of, of January 6th, mm. for example, and right. no. when it comes to foreign policy? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I'm glad you cited that part of the piece, because I think that is really one of the most important points that he made in that, which is, you know, Senator Sanders is someone who has been kind of sounding the alarm on rising authoritarianism for a long time. And but he, he wants to be clear on the sources of it, you know, inequality, corruption, among other things, you know, you know, you know, racism, ethnic hatred, this kind of this horrible stew. But I think even while he believes that we need to do everything we can to, you know, to support democracy in the battle against authoritarianism. I think one of the key points there was understanding that the battle between democracy and authoritarianism is happening within states as much as it is happening between them. And if we are going to buy into this framing that, well, it's team democracy over here and team authoritarianism over there, not only is that a false framing, it will ultimately benefit authoritarians. 
uh, both abroad and here at home, because this, you know, as we were saying earlier, let's understand the impact and the uses of this kind of nationalist uh, framing. It, it benefits a very specific kind of politics, and that is not a democratic politics. Toby, do you want to expand on that? Yeah, um, here in the U.S. and in countries around the world, one of the uh, most important tools in the authoritarian toolkit is this kind of nationalism, the promotion of narratives of foreign threats, and political strategies that are based on um, convincing the populace of a country to blame all of their problems on some supposed foreign rival that is uh, undermining like our nation. So here in the U.S., uh, there are there's an explicit strategy in the Republican Party in particular, the most uh, extremist uh, anti-China parts of the Republican Party, to use anti-China scapegoating uh, to build their power and legitimacy by telling uh, American voters um, that all the problems they face, um, including uh, lack of good jobs and economic inequality, are really the fault of China, and uh, that the future of the U.S. working class depends most of all on combating China and said, therefore, you should vote for Republicans, authoritarian Republicans, because they are the anti-China champions. And they use that narrative to cover up their record on issues of corporate power and defending corporate power and uh, attacking again and again uh, any measures uh, that would improve wages or uh, improve the ability of workers to organize and form unions and so on. And they use China as a distraction from their pro-corporate anti-worker record that continues to today. Um, And so that is a a major part of the authoritarian strategy and a threat to democracy. And if everyone who is committed to defending multiracial democracy against this racist authoritarian threat needs to uh, form alternatives to that anti-China strategy. Great. Well, thank you both for taking the time to come on the show. I, I really appreciate it and I wish you the best. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Great to see you, Toby. Yeah. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Mara. That was Tavita Chow and Matt Duss. And that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. The show was mixed by William Stanton. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. And Roger Hodge is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Mara Vistendahl. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com give. And if you enjoy this podcast, be sure to also check out Intercepted, as well as Murderville, which is now in its second season. If you haven't already, subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please... Go leave us a rating or a review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.